I'll tell you one of the reasons David prays. David prays because he knows the Lord can be trusted. You will turn to what you trust in. It's an abiding principle. You will turn to what you trust in. Behold what David does in these psalms. He's not counting on his own abilities. Though he no doubt has many. He's not banking on his resources. Those would be plentiful though. He's not even counting on his own reputation. As the king of Israel, his hope is in God. We've seen in our study of Psalms, life is not easy for this king. He is a suffering king. His military might, his position as Israel's ruler, it does not exempt him from the hardships and the sufferings and the assaults of life. What we see, though, in these Psalms is that David, he's a trusting, singing, lamenting, rejoicing, repenting, Worshipping King. He's those things because we need to be those things. The coming to the Lord is our refuge. David is an example for the believer also, and even more importantly, David is a type of the one to come, the promised son from the line and family of David, the Lord Jesus. David's life as a suffering king who experiences the powerful intervening rescue of the Lord, foreshadows the life of the Lord Jesus, the Son of David. We've been studying in these Psalms throughout 2023 so far. And we began Psalm 18 last week. I want to make an observation about the length here. We were taking two Sundays to look at this one Psalm. We've not had to do that prior. This Psalm is 50 verses. And you don't want to be here till two in the afternoon. I know you don't, so no, I'm just teasing. But this Psalms, this book of Psalms has five books that these 150 are broken into. And book one is, is what our focus has been in 2023. And we've been focusing on book one, Psalms 1 to 41. In book one, this is the longest psalm. Psalm 18 has 50 verses. It's the third longest in the whole book of Psalms. So it's quite lengthy in these 50 verses, but it is a celebration of God's deliverance. You don't have a 50 verse psalm of lament. That's not what this is. David has psalms of lament. We've looked at a variety of them. David's longest psalm of book one is a celebration of the power of God. I mean, that's worth 50 verses and more. And you you have this psalm where David is reflecting on the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God, the worthiness of God. He's reflecting over his conflicts and battles and praising God for victory. If you read in the book of 2 Samuel and you arrive in 2 Samuel 22, you will be amazed to find nearly verbatim the words of Psalm 18. Because David, as a psalmist, has these words not only in this book, in Psalm 18, but in, Psalm, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, almost exactly the same psalm of celebration of victory. The position of 2 Samuel 22 is interesting because it's right after victories over Saul and Saul's descendants. We've seen in the book of Psalms, especially in a couple superscriptions, that David's victories over the enemies that have come against him have included 
the hand of Saul that has opposed David. But what has God done for David? His anointed one, the king. God has come through. He has kept good on his promises. He's delivered David from the seed of the serpent. I want to make one other observation before we look at some of these details of Psalm 18 beginning in verse 30. In Psalm 18, we find the recurrence here at the end of our passage today of language of king and anointed. This matters because in verse 50, we heard this a moment ago before we prayed, great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed. Now the last time we heard about the anointed one and king was in Psalm 2. We're talking January of this year, right? We're talking early, many months ago now, where we were reflecting on Psalm 2, hoping for that coming victor. The king who would come from David's line. Psalm 18 is from David. It's not ultimately about David, though. Beginning in verse 30, the Lord, through David, inspires these words, reflecting on, through David's remembrance, who God is and His greatness. David, at the beginning of the psalm, celebrates God in various titles, descriptions in verses 2 and following. God is rock and fortress, deliverer, shield. He's all of these things for David. David was in trouble and the cords and snares of suffering had just bound him up so tightly beyond his ability to deliver himself. In verses 7 and following, God comes with power in such ways that it's as if a heavenly mighty storm can be described with the descent of God's rescuing strength. And the enemies of God don't even see it coming. And they cannot stand before the might of God as it arrives. David speaks of himself as delivered out of the many waters in verse 16, drawn right out. And in verse 30 through 50... Through a series of reflections, he is remembering how when God has delivered David, God himself had empowered the king for victory. It's not David's strength, but God's equipping grace. Where David is, let's say, trained by the Lord with the language that David gives here. We can speak of verses 30 through 36 as words of preparation. This God, David says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. God is a shield for those who take refuge in him. But for those who align against the Lord, there is only judgment. The only refuge from God is in God. Which means for David, he recognizes God for those who come to God in trust and hope. God is a shield for them. David knows this. And he, he's, he's reflecting here on what God does. What it is that God is about. God's plans, His way. There is no flaw in anything God does. He says here, His way, this God's way is perfect. David couldn't say that about his own ways. None of us could reflect on our plans and our efforts and say what David has said, that there is simply no flaw. But of God, you can say such. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true means whatever God has said, He can be trusted. He doesn't say one thing and yet something else come to pass as if He makes false promises. 
Rather, the word of the Lord, just give it time. It proves true. And that whole claim matters so significantly because we have the word of God where he makes himself known to his creatures so that we can study his word from Genesis to Revelation, rejoice in who the living God is, and we can trust that every word of God proves true. This is a foundational claim for why we want to study and know the word of God. For why we want to hope in God and why that hope is not in vain. Because God's words don't prove false. They prove true. We don't have claims and authorities in the world like this. Where all their ways are perfect and their words prove true. How fickle is man. And how wavering are many ways. But not the words and ways of the Lord. This is foundational theology one-on-one, one-on-one. What can we say of God and of God's words? They are perfect. They are without flaw. When He makes promises, they are unwaveringly, faithfully true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. This question in verse 31, really two questions. For who is God but the Lord? There were many claims of ancient Near Eastern worshipers, that the various idols and carved wooden images and golden things that they bowed down to and sacrificed to, that these were also gods. But this question in verse 31 presses against all of that. It's a claim for the exclusiveness of the living God. Who is God but Yahweh? And it's such a clear answer that it doesn't even need to be stated. There is no God but Yahweh. Who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? This second question with the first pairs together what animates David to both pray and trust in God as refuge. There's no God other than God. And there's no rock and refuge for sinners other than God. So we must know these questions and ask them. That we might answer them according to God's word. This is more than just a rhetorical question. When David in this psalm is saying, who's God but the Lord? He's teaching us something. That's why it's so important that we reflect on what we sing because lyrics have an educational role. Lyrics are formative for our hearts and minds. They're telling us when we sing and follow along with the word of God or with hymns and other songs, we are wanting to say what is true. David says, who's God but the Lord? Who's a rock except our God? What is this God like? Well, this God has prepared David. He has equipped him. In verse 32, this is the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Meaning that David's way, the way of life and the way of blessing before God, that God has directed David's path. David doesn't say, let me tell you why this is going so well for me. I'm just really clever. I'm just a really smart king. You know, the previous people or the other contemporaries of mine, listen, I just have better understanding than they do. I've just got better knowledge. I've got better plans, better advisors. David doesn't appeal to any of those other things in his contemporary day. For what has equipped him and strengthened him for that hour. It is God. He equips me with strength. He makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. The feet of a deer are well placed and fast. 
Ready, ready to move at a moment's notice and yet secure on the heights away from threat. So the way of David that's blameless in verse 32, you, know, you see he walks on this way with his feet representing his life. And what David's life is like is it's rooted in what it ought to be. It is sensitive to what needs to be avoided and what needs to be pursued. And it's removed from the ultimate threat of the evil one to destroy him and condemn him. God has made my feet like the feet of a deer. All glory goes to God in this psalm. Don't miss what ought to be painfully obvious to us in one sense, but we must say it out loud over and over again. David is talking about the power of God, the strength from God, the might of his Savior. David says in verse 34, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. In other words, for what David has to face, pictured here with the imagery of battle, that would would be so common for a king, right? In verse 34, you're picturing this bow, probably dipped in bronze or maybe one formed from bronze. And his arms are strengthened for the task to be able to employ what he needs to. But David, again, is appealing to the Lord. Who has equipped him for the difficulties ahead? It is God. He trains my hands for war. It makes you think of maybe a a master of a particular skill taking on an apprentice and saying, here's how you punch. Here's how you grip. Here's how you move. You know, think of the Rocky movies, right? And you think about David here. He's saying, he trains my hands for war. Whatever I've got to face, whatever foe is coming, there there is someone who knows more than I do, who is saying, here is how to face what is before you. In verse 35, you've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Shield of salvation, this shield language is already seen earlier. Right hand supporting David speaks about the strength from the hand of God. But listen to that last phrase in 35. Your gentleness made me great. Oh, the Lord is is patient with David, full of steadfast love and kindness. His words are words of tenderness and care, wisdom and support. David knows the word of God and the covenants with God. David himself is in covenant with God. And there is therefore a gentleness in God's dealings with David. Even the correcting, rescuing grace that David has to experience comes from a God who's not coming to condemn David, but to come gently with David. And walk lovingly with David and faithfully with David. And David says, you you know what that has meant for me? That your gentleness has blessed me in this way. Your gentleness has given me something that all the pride of the world and and the various self-exaltation instincts of those around me would have never done for me. Your gentleness, Lord, has lifted me up and made me great. In verse 36, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet didn't slip. Again, thinking about the feet of David. Feet like a deer there in verse 33. And feet securely placed in verse 33 and verse 36. A wide place where he's not narrowed in constriction under suffering. But delivered and liberated. A wide place for him to live. All of this is figurative language. It's figurative language to say, here's David's relationship with the Lord. David trusts in God. God's his refuge. He knows the word of God, so he's hoping in what God has made known. And God's words have proven true in David's life. David isn't perfect, but God's words are perfect. 
And David walks on a blameless way, not because David's without sin, but because God's ways are blameless. And those are the ways David is wanting to pursue. This is all preparation in verses 30 through 36. The victory is described in verses 37 to 45. Verses 37 and 45 through 45 in the ESV, it starts reflecting on what the victory involved. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. Now we need to know how verse 37 is preceded by appealing to the strength of God, power of God, might of God, who's equipped him for this. David has equipped, God has equipped David for victory, and now David says, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. But how? Did David pursue by his own strength and cleverness? Did he overtake them by his own military might? Ultimately, it's the power and strength of God. Not what David brings to the table, but what God equips David for. Verse 37 is the result of God fighting for David. God is David's shield. And I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. Pursuing and overtaking enemies makes us think in the Israelites' history of the time before David. The time of the conquest. The time of the conquest where God's promises were going to be inherited and the militant groups among the Canaanites wanted to overthrow the Israelites and their mighty fortresses and their many armies were overcome by the power of God. Thinking about the conquest is fitting because Moses and Joshua have stories that have been lurking in the background of Psalm 18 already. We know that Moses led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And in Psalm 18, David is picturing the arrival of God as like the smoke and fire of Sinai itself. In Psalm 18, 8, smoke goes up and devouring fire. Foundations of the mountains tremble in verse 7 and quake. In Exodus 19, at Sinai, those are the things that happen. The presence of the Lord is often described with this thunderous and mighty experience that is fearsome and overwhelming to everybody around. That's exactly the scene of Exodus 19. We also saw in verse 16, when God draws David out of the many waters, that language is meant to invoke Moses. Moses in the Old Testament was drawn out of the waters in Exodus 2 and named Moses because of the sound of that name with that phrase, drawn out of the waters. David in the superscription of the psalm even calls himself a servant of the Lord. And other than David being a servant of Yahweh, the only time the phrase servant of the Lord is used is of the lives of Moses and Joshua. This psalm in other words, is shaped by the earlier scriptures David knows and he's praying to God and calling out for God to come with his thunderous, delivering, rescuing grace like in the days of Moses. That he might have victory like in the days of Joshua. I pursued my enemies and I overtook them. I didn't turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through in verse 38. It's picturing David with his hands trained for war. And no doubt pictured here holding a sword with this image. I thrust them through. They were unable to rise. They fell under my feet. Being subdued under the feet of this representative of the the people of Israel, the king, it reminds us of the early parts of Genesis. When in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman would have victory over the serpent. And while the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head beneath his feet. 
It was this image of conquest and victory. It was this image of being subdued and defeated. When David says here, these enemies are once again under my feet, David continues to be a shadow of that one to come who will defeat sin and death and hell. David says they fell under my feet. They were unable to rise for you equipped me with strength for the battle. David in this psalm is not patting himself on the back. He's not looking back in hindsight and saying, my goodness, Look at what I accomplished. I'm really great. He says instead in verse 39, it's God's strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. The the language that's being paired together here is so instructive for us. Because even as we make headway in sanctification, even as we put to death the deeds of the flesh and seek to walk by the fruit of the Spirit, the glory for that does not belong to us. As we grow in holiness and as we pursue wisdom, we are not those who say, well, my goodness, what a great and almighty Christian I'm turning out to be. That is not the instruction of the psalm. The psalm wants to notice the victory of God that is taking place, victory of which we are part, and the power comes from where? Heaven. This is not from within us where we have pulled our mighty and clever designs out and and then with that uh, human empowerment accomplished great wonders of Christianity. Instead, we have said, God, you have equipped me with strength. In verse 40, you made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. Enemies turning their backs. Well, you know, the, the opposing army doesn't want to have to turn their backs. That's a symbol of retreat. If the enemies turn and you see their backs, turning the backs to one of the armies is a sign of flight. And David says, that's what you did, God. Those who came against me, who are ready to overthrow me in every way, you made their backs turn. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help in verse 41, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he didn't answer them. Verse 41 is intriguing because the first phrase that they cry for help may mean that they cried for their own gods, similar to the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 17. Crying out for Baal or these other ancient gods to to deliver. But of course, they're none to say because these gods don't exist. Who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock besides our God? And so, having failed to cry out to their gods and be delivered, they now cry out to David's God. But he won't deliver them either. They've been appointed for judgment. So they cry out, but none save. They cry to Yahweh. He does not hear their prayer. He hears David's prayer. Because God is not their shield. They despise the Lord and the Lord's people. He's not their shield. They trust in other things. Their refuge is other things. And those things cannot save. Oh friend, don't don't live your life for what can't save. Don't hope in and trust with all your heart in what can't deliver you. There is God. What is a rock besides our God? Who is God but Yahweh? Psalm 18 would exhort us then, trust in God like David did. Hope in God. Cry out to God. David says in verse 42, I beat them as fine dust before the wind. Not only does the language of anointed one and king make us think of Psalm 2, the enemies of God like dust or chaff make us think of Psalm 1. The blessed man flourishes and is delivered by the Lord and his word and ways are prospering under the power of God. Psalm 1 says the wicked are not so. 
They're like chaff driven away by the wind. He says here, they're as fine dust before the wind. And I cast them out like the mire of the streets. The mire is to picture mushy ground in the streets. Ground you'd want to avoid, not go walking in. The mire of the streets, something to be cast aside and ignored, avoided. Cast as dust before the wind like mire in the streets. In verse 43, you delivered me from, the, from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. I think this continues the Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 connections. Head of the nations and people I've not known serving me. Doesn't this remind us of Psalm 2 where the kings are told, Be wise, O kings, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in him. David says, well, you've delivered me from the strife they've brought about. You made me as head of the nations. People whom I've not known served me. This is why one writer says, the words of David seem to overflow the banks of Psalm 18 and head toward the Messiah in the New Testament. Because the one who will be appointed head of the nations is not merely the earthly David who reigned around 1010 BC. No, this is, this is ultimately a pattern that Christ himself will fulfill as the Psalm 2 king. And Christ will vanquish his enemies. He reigns and must put all enemies under his, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 15. The anointed one here is pictured as head of the nations and people who were not known in this sense of kind of covenant or relational capacity now are serving him. In verses 44 and 45, as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. In other words, it is an abandonment of the commitment to live against the Lord. The rebellion. It's as if they are laying down the arms. That's what we're picturing here. Leaving their fortresses. Coming and having lost heart. Coming and trembling in defeat. This is the submission of the enemies of God. So what these verses are doing up through verse 45. Is showing us the preparation that God has for David. And then David's reflection on the victory. We've looked at the preparation, the victory. Here is David's praise. Verses 46 to 50. These were the five verses we heard before we prayed before the sermon. These five verses that end this psalm are David's praise unto God. The Lord lives. And that's just a really full phrase I want you to know. The Lord lives. This is in contrast to every other claim of an idol to be worshipped in the ancient Near East. No one can say truthfully about Baal or Asherah poles or anything else that those things live. But you can say this about Yahweh. In fact, not only does the Lord live, the fact that the Lord lives is the reason anything else does. Every living thing derives its life from Yahweh who lives. He does not derive His life from anyone. But independently and self-sufficiently, He reigns eternally as the living God. The Lord lives. And blessed be the rock. Exalted be the God of my salvation. Blessed be the rock and exalted. This is language of praise 
David is caught up here with recognizing not only who God is and what God has done, but what God is worthy of. We don't want to fall short of that final thing. Such an important piece of the song. There might be those who would recognize, yeah, I can see that God's been at work in my life and in the lives of others, but they don't worship the Lord. Or they might say, I can see in ways in which the God has spared and rescued me and provided and sustained, but you know, I'm, just, I'm still living for other things. Follow Psalm 18 all the way through. David is a worshiper of Yahweh because those things are true. Blessed be my rock, exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. Verse 47 is just the summary of what we've looked at with that victory victory section. In verse 48, God is the one who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you, God, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. And the man of violence is just seen there as a singular representing all the enemies of Yahweh. The enemies of Yahweh being summed up there as the man of violence. And God brought down the man of violence and he lifted up David. David has refuge in the Lord. And that means David can trust in God, hope in God, rejoice in God, lament before God, be made low before God. God be worthy of praise nevertheless. David is rescued from his enemies, exalted over those who rose against him. And he says in verse 49, for this I will praise you, O Yahweh. Among the nations and sing to your name. The worshiper of Yahweh wants to sing to God. Non-song praise to God is wonderful. But David has so much to say that it causes him to sing. Not only to bless God with words, but to think about those words and to form such words into psalms. And to praise God with song. I will praise you, O Lord. But praise God in the context of what? Well, among all the nations, God is worthy to be praised. I mean, after all, who is God but Yahweh? What is a rock like our rock? In verse 49, the nations need to know of those worshiping Yahweh that they might leave their fortresses, lay down their resistance to Yahweh, and praise Him with the saints. I praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation He brings. Friends, great salvation. There's no other kind. There's no other kind of salvation. It doesn't come in degrees of like mediocre and very basic. And there's it's always great. His rescue is great. His grace is amazing. His power is transcendent. There's nothing tame, subtle, or ho-hum about it at all. I don't think I've ever said ho-hum in all my years of preaching, but there you go. It just came out. In verse 50, great salvation he brings to his king. And show steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now that last phrase, we've seen David praising God, reflecting on his victory. But David knows something that God is already up to. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, this psalm appears nearly verbatim after victories from various enemies. So if you're in Psalm 22 and you hit the rewind button, you go back to 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, there was a covenant made with David that there would be a coming descendant, a son of David, an offspring, a seed. And that that seed, that offspring, would be the one reigning on the throne forever. He would be greater than David ever was. He was the promised Messiah. 
And I want to say to you that in verse 50, this salvation that David has experienced pales in in comparison to the salvation that the son of David will bring. The one who is the anointed one, the one greater than David, that David is a type himself of. The one that Psalm 2 is celebrating and Psalm 8 continues to confirm. This is to celebrate the coming of Christ. This is to recognize that his covenant steadfast love is leading us like an overflowing river beyond the boundaries of Psalm 18. And where is the water flowing? I'm telling you it flows to the cross. It flows to the place where great is the salvation he brings. Behold the deliverance of the king and by the king. We know the suffering king of the Lord Jesus foreshadowed by David. And that when David says the cords of death encompassed me in verse 4, how much more true is that on the cross? Is it not the case that upon Mount Calvary's cross, Jesus in the, in the cross could simply say the words of these psalms like verse 4, the cords of death are here, the torrents of destruction assailing me, snares of death confronting me. And just as David experiences the delivering strength of God's power, the Lord Jesus will be delivered from death itself. Psalm 18 has messianic significance. Overflowing waters beyond the banks of David's life. Flowing to the cross and the greater son of David himself. The Apostle Paul used Psalm 18 in the book of Romans. In Romans 15, Paul is going to tie together several Old Testament passages, one of which is from Psalm 18. And here's Paul's point in Romans 15, 8. He says, I tell you, Christ became a servant for the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to those patriarchs so that the Gentiles might glorify God for mercy. Paul is saying God has purposed what he's done in Christ to fulfill earlier promises that the nations might come to know God. The Gentiles glorify God for God's mercy. And the first Old Testament support Paul gives is from Psalm 18, verse 49. Therefore, I will praise you among the nations or the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. You see, when Paul reads Psalm 18, what he realizes is this is truth to sing about with God's greater redemptive plan beyond the life of David himself as a historical figure and to the days of the Messiah and the church where indeed the nations will celebrate the mercy of God. And you know how I know the word of God proves true? Because we're here in this room. And we exalt the mercy of God in Christ. We are these that Paul has in mind among the nations of the earth who are these Gentiles and not Jews. And we glorify God for His mercy because every word of God proves true. Paul reads Psalm 18 and he says, this has meaning for the work of Christ and His church and the spread of the Gospel. Consider lastly the movements in Psalm 18 as a whole. Having taken two whole weeks to look at this psalm, we can see, zooming out, that the king is surrounded by the cords of death. He's delivered from death by the power of God. And then he's exalted over all his enemies. This pattern in David's life is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. On the cross, Jesus is entangled by the cords of death. On the third day, raised by the power of God in victory. 
And at his ascension, he is exalted over heaven and earth, over all his enemies with the name that is above every name. And I want to implore with you, dear friend, having heard the words of the Psalms and a myriad of other texts, hope in Christ. Who is a God but our God? Who is a rock besides Yahweh, the refuge for sinners? Let us hope in Him. That in Him we might be delivered from our trespasses and sins. That we might be raised from death to life. And then in the future we might be glorified in His very presence to dwell with Him in everlasting joy. There is no God like our God. Let's stand together as we pray. And ask the Lord's blessing upon the word preached.